continue and in fact conclude our, our study of the book of Haggai this morning. So if you have a copy of Scripture, I would encourage you to go ahead and start turning to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, of course, is one of the last books in the Old Testament. So if you find the beginning of the New Testament and you go back three books, you will find the book of Haggai. It is very small. Don't feel bad if you have to use the table of contents. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of those black pew Bibles in front of you. And if you need, take one of those Bibles with you as our gift to you this morning. We've spent the last two weeks, and then this week we'll make three in the book of Haggai, and I hope that you have enjoyed this walk through Haggai. I, I, um, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this is that, A, I think that the words of God that we find in Haggai are important for us, um, and I think they're important for this congregation in this season, um, but also I am not unaware that this may be the first time you've ever heard sermons preached from the book of Haggai. Maybe not. But a lot of these, what we refer to as the minor prophets, minor because they are smaller in length, not because they are less important, but many of these minor prophets are overlooked, and we don't spend a lot of time with them sometimes, and so I hope that you have enjoyed it. But I, wanna, I wanted us to also take an opportunity this morning to to talk about something, um, while we will always have sermons and series that one could call topical or thematic, this style that we've been doing the last couple of weeks where we take a, a book or a significant section or chunk of a book and walk through it together um, is something that we're going to be doing more of in the future. You know, when I when I come up here and when I preach, when I when I sit during the week and prepare, um, I, I try as, as best that I can to do all that I can to let the Word of God speak. I try as best as I can every Sunday to leave myself down there in the pew. And when I step into the pulpit to bring only the Word of God. Even when preaching thematically, I try not to cherry-pick certain verses, although there are things um, that I think that we might need to hear. That is part of my job, is to sit and to pray and to ask God what it is that, that we as a congregation need to spend some time with. But even when I, even when I do that, I try and preach what's in the text. No more or no less. Not to add anything or remove anything from it. And sometimes that means that you're not going to hear me talk about things from this pulpit that maybe you think that I should. There are going to be things that are coming up in the world that I can assure you I have an opinion on. You can ask my wife or my mother or my in-laws. I have an opinion on everything. But just because I have, I have an opinion on something, even as best as I can as an individual to base that opinion in the Word of God, it is not my job to step into this pulpit and give you my opinion. It is my job to step into this pulpit and as faithfully and clearly as I can expand and expound on the Word of God. 
It also means if I'm not going to preach anything more or anything less than what is in Scripture, there are going to be some times where you hear things uh, that might step on your toes. Because Scripture is going to step on your toes. The last time I checked, no one in this room or at home or in fact anywhere else alive at this time or any other time than from about 0 A.D. to about 33 A.D. is Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are not perfect. And therefore, the Word of God will step on your toes. In fact, sometimes the Word of God doesn't step on our toes. Sometimes the Word of God is a steamroller that flattens our toes. But we need the whole counsel of God. We need the whole counsel of God. We need everything in God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. It's one of the reasons that most of our Sunday school classes use the Gospel Project curriculum. Because not only does it help adults and children be on the same topics and the same lessons to encourage Gospel conversations between families at home, but it also covers the entirety of Scripture in a three-year cycle. For those of you who are in those classes using that curriculum, you'll notice that we have just started a new cycle. Y'all are, where are you back? You're back at Genesis, aren't you? You just finished where? Revelation. So this is why we're going to have more by-the-book preaching. It's to see and experience that whole counsel of God. So I hope that you've enjoyed this three-week mini version of walking through a book of the Bible. And we're going to see some more of that in the future. We will also continue to see thematic preaching because sometimes there are just themes, biblical themes that we need to study and expound on. So we are in the book of Haggai, this, uh, and have been the last couple of weeks. That first week, we, we looked at Haggai 1 and how we need to examine ourselves and pay attention to those check engine lights that come on in our lives. Those check engine lights that come on and, and tell us that something isn't right. That something needs to be checked. And as part of that, we we saw that we must not let God take any place in our lives and in our worship other than that number one spot. And last week, as we looked at the first part of chapter 2, we saw that we, we need to be rooted in the past but not stuck there in order to move forward. That we needed a good understanding of history but not nostalgia. And that we need to ask God to remind us of how He has worked before so that our worship will remain focused on Him and so that we can see and hope in the promise for the future. And so this week we're going to conclude chapter 2. So we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2 starting with the 10th verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says, ask the priests for a ruling. 
If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, okay, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so, so is this people, so is this nation before me, this is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. Now, from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the work of your hands, with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. Governor of Judah, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And make you my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And this is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we, as we open your word this morning, as we seek to glean from your word what you would have us to hear today, we know that we can only do that with you. We know that we can only do that through your intervention. And so, God, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts are acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So, so in, this, in this second part of chapter 2, we actually have two different words from God. They, they arrive on the same day, but they are very clearly made two. They come this two, about two months after what we heard from God in the first part of chapter 2 that we, we studied and looked at last week. There are these two parts. The first part actually has sort of two different beats in it. And then the last part is this separate word given through Haggai to Zerubbabel, who is who's the governor. And so in that, that first part, 
Starts there in, in verse 10. And, and here, Haggai starts by asking a two-part legal question. He's asking a two-part legal question of the priests. And he says, okay, the first part is this. If I'm carrying something that has been consecrated, and I'm carrying a bunch of stuff that hasn't been consecrated, it's, it's not defiled, it's just sort of neutral, and the holy thing touches the neutral thing, does the neutral thing become consecrated and holy? In other words, is holiness transferable? And the answer from the priest, correctly, was no. It doesn't. And Haggai says, okay, now here's the second part of the question. Say you're carrying that same neutral stuff, and you've got it, you're carrying it around, and you come across someone who has been in contact with a corpse. Now, this is one of the ways that you could defile yourself. You could become ritually unclean was by coming into contact with the corpse. It wasn't necessarily a matter of sin, right? Sometimes you have to come into contact with the corpse. Because people die. And we don't just let them stay where they fall, right? In fact, there's a whole, there's a whole set of, of rules and laws in the Torah, in God's law about how we deal with dead bodies. But, but if you come into contact with a dead body, you are ritually unclean. So, so you are carrying along a whole, you're carrying your groceries home, and somebody comes alongside you to help you carry everything into the house because at the age of 38, you have decided carrying all of the groceries in in one go is probably something you should leave in your 20s. and they touch this neutral stuff, does their ritual defilement transfer to what was previously been neutral? And the answer, correctly, is yes. Corruption can spread. Defilement Corruption is transferable. It's contagious, just like disease. Now, it's important to note here that, that Haggai is, is speaking sort of in metaphors, right? Because he's talking about ritual uncleanliness, which is not something that we as believers have to deal with, right? For Christ's blood has made us ritually clean once and for all time. We don't have to worry about this. We don't have to separate ourselves at certain times and wash certain ways and do all of that sort of thing. So Haggai is, is using this idea of ritual cleanliness or uncleanliness to talk about something bigger. To talk about the fact that when uncleanliness and defilement and corruption enters in, it has this tendency of taking over and affecting 
everything. You know, there's this expression that we hear sometimes, oh, he's just a bad apple. Meaning he's one apple in a bunch of apples that has gone bad. Does anyone remember the rest of that expression? A bad apple, what? Ruins the bunch. Because you get, you get that, that rot, whatever it is, whether it's mildew or mold or a fungus or whatever else, and it's on that apple or it's on, we had this experience this week with some tomatoes. It was very sad. And it gets in that one and it goes through the whole bunch real quick, doesn't it? That's why when we bring things in from the garden, we want to make sure we wash it as soon as it comes in because we want to wash off that stuff because all of the tomatoes might not have had it, but that one tomato had it on it and now we have no tomatoes. And they were very good. I was very proud of myself. See, the uncleanliness of Judah's disobedience had even made their worship unclean and defiled. Remember back, we are in the situation in Haggai that we are because the people have returned from exile and they have not yet rebuilt God's temple. They have been disobedient. And that disobedience has, has made even their worship unclean and repugnant. It's permeated everything. See, obedience to God is necessary for worship to be accepted. And we hear there's over and over and over again in the prophets before the exile. Most famously, we, we heard this in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and great offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Doesn't matter how wonderful, pretty, gracious, amazing the worship in the temple was, God was repulsed by it because the people were involved in disobedience. Our actions impact our worship and show the true condition of our heart. The people of Judah have been dishonoring God because they have not been worshiping Him with their whole hearts. Remember, their houses were paneled and the house of the Lord sat destroyed. The people of Judah were keeping things back from him. The people of Judah were not placing him first and everything. See, I think sometimes we have this idea that our life can be compartmentalized, right? The worship of God lives here. And our job lives over there. And our relationships live over here. And, and our sports fandoms fit in here, and our hobbies are over here. 
And we have this idea that all of these things are these separate spheres or cylinders or silos that we can pour things into. And so, and so when, we, when we want God, when we want to spend time with God, we just go to the God silo and we pull the sustenance from the God silo. But that's not what relationship with Him is. That's not what our lives are. Our lives aren't compartmentalized like that, are they? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that. All of our lives, Scripture tells us, all of our lives are to be lived to the glory of God. Everything we do falls under God's sovereignty. God cannot be the Lord of our lives on Sunday only. He demands to be the Lord of our lives Monday through Saturday as well. Every aspect of our lives is the purview of God. And we are fools if we think that we can come here on Sunday morning and give God our so-called Sunday best and then shortchange Him the rest of the week and that He will then bless us. Corruption, defilement is like gangrene. It is death. And it spreads. And I fear for far too long we have let gangrenous places grow in the church in this country. You want to know why things are the way that they are? It's a check engine light, folks. God is telling us that we are centering so many things other than Him. We're centering controversies and debate. We're centering politics. We're centering our personal wants and desires. We're centering our own comfort and wealth and health over Him. Now those things are not unimportant. Those things aren't bad. But they are not made to be the center. God made us to have Him as the center of our lives. And until we repent, and until we turn back from the rot, why should we expect the Lord to bless us and bring about transformation, or renewal, or awakening? Those are the work of God. But we, those of us who are His disciples, who are His followers, must do the hard work of growing in Christ-likeness, putting away the things of our spiritual childhood, and maturing in faith. This is what Haggai is prompting with these questions about meat and food and people who have touched corpses. Because then he continues into this to the second element of this first message, this message, this word to the people. So the people have been at work on the temple for three months, and they're still not experiencing blessing and fruitful harvests. I love the fact, it says here, it says, Now, from this day on, 
And we read this sometimes. And it has said, right, we've said it's the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. And we hear that and we read that in Scripture, but I think sometimes it doesn't translate. If we were to take our calendar and move it backwards, Haggai brought this word to the people of God on December the 18th, 520 B.C. That is how clear and specific Scripture is on when this word was brought. It was December the 18th, 520. Now, I want you to remember that it was December because this is going to be important here in a second. So the people have been at work and they're still not experiencing blessing. They're still not experiencing fruitful harvest. They've had all of this trouble. God, God points out to them, remember, remember when you thought you had, you had, you had 50 shares of something and, and you only ended up with 20 or you thought you had 20 and you ended up with 10, remember that? And that hasn't really changed for the people. They haven't experienced the, the, the fruit of a bountiful harvest. And why? Why? They've been doing everything they were supposed to do for two months. Why? Because they're between harvests. How, much, how many crops are in the field ready to be harvested on December the 18th? They're between harvests. So God has seen their faithfulness. God has seen that the fields are tilled and the new seed has been planted in anticipation of the rich harvest to come. But the barns and the vats and the storehouses and the silos still are witness to their previous disobedience. They still demonstrate the effects of what has happened because of their disobedience. Sometimes when we repent and we return to God, we expect the harvest, the blessings, the good things to come right away, don't we? You know, I think sometimes we think that, that repentance and confession of sin is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? We were lucky enough to pull that on our last trip around the board, and so now we've got this get-out-of-jail-free card, and... <clears throat> We have an unlucky roll, and we roll to go directly to jail, go to jail, directly to jail, do not pass, go, do not collect $200. And so we play that get-out-of-jail-free card, and everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. But that's not the way that sin works. That's not the way that forgiveness and repentance works. Go back sometime, reread the story of David and Bathsheba. And in particular, read about what happens when the prophet Nathan comes to David. And the prophet Nathan says, David, because you have sinned, there are going to be all of these consequences to that sin. And one of those consequences is, and you are going to die. And David begs for forgiveness and he repents. And Nathan says, okay, because you have repented, you won't die. But he never says the other consequences of your sin won't come. And in fact, they do. The kingdom of Israel splits north and south because of the sin of David. The northern kingdom is carried off by the Assyrians because of the sin of David. The people of Judah are carried off to Babylon, to exile, because of the sin of David. David took a little pebble that didn't seem to be that big a deal, threw it into a lake, 
and the ripples affected millions. When we ask for forgiveness and when we repent, we can't pull those ripples back. And I think sometimes we think that that everything is going to come right away. We're used to it because we live in this culture of instant gratification or near instant gratification. If I lived somewhere other than Fairmont, I at this moment could pull my phone out, pull up the Domino's app, order pizza, and it would be here before the end of the church service. This is a petition, a suggestion, an ask that if anyone wants to open a Domino's franchise, I volunteer as your first customer. But we're used to that, right? I can open my phone right now and watch just about any movie that's ever been made from my phone instantly. Some of you remember when Disney movies used to go back into the vault. Remember that? Now, it was a marketing strategy. It was a way to separate parents from their money. But unless you had that tape of Cinderella when that was out, you didn't get to watch Cinderella again. Movies used to come back into the theaters on second, third, fourth run, sometimes even years later, didn't they? The first movie I ever saw in the theater was apparently The Aristocats. I don't remember it. I'm not that old. I didn't see it on the first run. That movie's 10 years older than I am. And now we don't do that. Now if I want to watch Aristocats, all I've got to do is open my phone, pull up Disney+, Plus, hit the button, and within 15 seconds, I'm watching Aristocats. I don't know why I would do that. But you get, the exam- you get the point. We live in this culture of instant gratification. But here's the thing. Crops take a season to grow and to mature. Some of you grew up on farms. Crops take a season to grow and mature, don't they? Farmer doesn't sick, stick a tobacco seed in the ground, and an hour and a half later have a beautiful, a beautiful crop ready to harvest. I still haven't gotten any zucchini. I'm doing something wrong. I know I'm doing something wrong. Because crops take a season to grow. So let us not despair if the harvest doesn't show up right away. The harvest has been promised to us. And so we till the soil and we plant the seed in the anticipation and the knowledge that the promise of God will come true. I mentioned a while ago about what was happening at Long Hollow Baptist Church. Long Hollow Baptist Church over in Tennessee. They experienced an amazing revival Starting in December to now, they've baptized thousands of people. But here's the thing, it didn't happen overnight. It happened after years of faithful discipleship and prayer on the part of that congregation. If they had just said, after their first prayer meeting, years ago, well, God hasn't shown up yet. 
I guess this isn't what we're supposed to be doing, and had moved on, we wouldn't have seen what we saw this year. The harvest doesn't always come right away. It takes a season to grow. And now we come to this really weird section. This, this personal word for Zerubbabel. Script, the, 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 the text is very clear that this is a separate word on the same day, but a separate word. Now previously, when we've seen Haggai have a word for the people, he also has words for Zerubbabel as part of that overall word. But this is separate. This is, this is different. It's unusual. And so we have to ask ourselves, if it's a separate word for one person, why is it here for us? Because if it's for Zerubbabel and not all of God's people, why is it here for God's people? See, I think that the answer to that is, is because while it was a word to Zerubbabel at the time, it's a word to us now as well. See, Zerubbabel was of the Davidic line. He was serving, as I mentioned, he was serving as governor and he was never king. He's in that but he's in that line of kings. And so Haggai shows up and he's talking about the shaking of the heavens and the earth. He's talking about the coming of Jesus that will establish a new kingdom and, well, shake things up. And Zerubbabel, if you turn to Matthew, you'll see that Zerubbabel is an ancestor of Jesus. Zerubbabel is part of that Davidic line that leads to Jesus, that stump of Jesse. And this promise to him to shake things up and to bring low the nations of the earth that are not God's kingdom is one that is already and not yet fulfilled for us. Because Jesus has come and Jesus has established his kingdom and he has shaken things up. But yet the kingdom of God is not yet complete. Nor will it be until Jesus returns. And the book here ends on a note of hope. As hard as it may have been for Judah to hear some of these words all along, it ends here on this note of hope. Because God... Paul Zerubbabel, his signet ring. You all know what a signet ring is? It's a ring that a ruler of some kind would have, and it would have a seal in it. And so it was a way of, of certifying that, that a document came from that ruler. It was a really important thing. In fact, in in Great Britain, now, no law can become law unless it has the Queen's seal affixed to it. It's the, the proof that the King has said this. And call Zerubbabel his, his signet ring, his, his seal. Because it's, it's through him and through this line that this restoration is going to happen. It's going to lead to Jesus. But not only is it that, it's also a word of hope because it is a restoration of that Davidic line. 
Zerubbabel is not only the ancestor of Jesus, he is also the descendant, the grandchild of Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin had been cursed by God. And in in Jeremiah, when God curses um, uh, Jehoiachin, what he does is he says, he says, you have been the signet ring on my right hand and I am taking you off and I am casting you away. You are no longer my seal. You are no longer proof of my sovereignty. I'm casting you off to my enemies. And now here in Zerubbabel, God restores the Davidic line. and He goes, once again, you and your descendants down to Jesus will be my signet ring, will be proof of who I am and what I intend to do. You know, it's fair to say that many of us can find ourselves struggling to hear from God. We feel like that we're laboring in vain and that He's just not hearing us. Here I am, God. I am building Your temple. I am building Your kingdom. I am doing everything that I think that You want me to do. And yet we just don't hear from Him. And what Haggai has been showing us from the very beginning to the very end is that sometimes our disconnectedness from God stems not from Him, but from us. And from the behaviors in our lives that need to be corrected and addressed. However, if we are humble enough to listen and to follow God, we see in Haggai that God is a God who relents and who gathers us back to Himself. Four different times in Haggai, God calls them to give careful thought to their ways. And He calls us to the same standard, to give careful thought. All that we do and all that we are motivated by comes from our heart. And worship is no different. Like the Hebrew people, like the the people of Judah here in Haggai, we must be willing to answer the question, are we here and are we doing this for the right reasons? Because if the answer to that is no, the blessing will not come the rot will set in. And we will die. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 316. Jesus is tenderly calling. Jesus is tenderly calling. If this morning you